Welcome back, everyone. This is another episode of Decode. I'm joined with Young Agompin. Hey. And we're just back at it again with um, just kind of a more chill, laid-back episode. We're just going to be talking about things that we've been into before we jump into the Difference and Repetition series, just so that we have some content for you guys before we really just kind of tackle that book. Yeah, exactly. It's great to be back. We're really looking forward to the Difference in Repetition series coming up, as well as some really cool guests that I think you guys will really like. Um, but it's good to be back, good to be recording. Uh, what's been going on with you, Q? What's, uh, what's on your mind these days? Um, I guess not too much. Um, just kind of been digging around different types of um, topics. Uh, I mean, I've been trying to keep up with a lot of like uh, the financialization, finance part of the world, uh, you know, just hyperinflation, well, just inflation for now, but <laughs> what tends to look like uh, we'll be going into, you know, higher, higher and higher inflation. And then just to see how that correlates with um, crypto, crypto assets and things like that. That's kind of where I've been, as well as some philosophy of math and things of that nature, more analytic. Damn, yeah, Cute's becoming an analytic. We may have to uh, <laughs> fish him from those swamps pretty soon, but really interesting stuff. Yeah, I think it's cool, or I think it's actually really interesting you bring up like financialization. We did that episode on financialization and crypto financialization, and there's been a lot of, of news in sort of that arena. Obviously, we have the inflation, but I was also uh, thinking in regards to this, uh, this major trucker protest in Canada right now. Um, I, I think the politics of it are probably pretty dubious. You know, I, I do think there's some, you know, media kind of pollution going on there where they're basically saying, oh, look, these guys are Nazis. Look, the, you know, they're, it's a far right blockade or whatever, which, you know, so on and so forth. It, you know, and maybe it is. I, I can't really tell exactly what the entire politics of it. It's, it's clearly sort of a lightning rod moment for sort of anti-lockdown, anti-government protests. But I, what I was looking into and what I think is important about these examples is you can see that a simple truck, trucker blockade in Canada can actually paralyze the global economy, which I think we need to really understand the logistics and sort of the supply side infrastructure of what a major protest looks like. And it reminds me of uh, over a decade ago in Los Angeles at the port, which is the biggest port in the world, there was a major strike by the workers there and cost billions, multiple billions of dollars per day to strike there. And economists actually uh, predicted that if that strike had gone on for about two more weeks, it would have caused basically a massive financial crisis. So whenever things like this happen, I think it kind of gets clouded and uh, who's right, who's wrong, what do they want, so on and so forth. But in speaking about ways at sort of changing the structure of the global economy, the leverage that the that workers have, especially in, a, in the transportation industry, should not be underestimated. In fact, the the power to change or to to make serious demands on capitalism and industrial nations is in our hands right now. Simple strikes are still enough. And sometimes we kind of forget the fact that 
you know, the economy is so fragile, has so much intersection that one strike in one country can bring it to its knees. But I think it's an important, it's important to look at strikes like these, moments like these, and see, think, you know, strategy going forward. What, what does this show us about the vulnerabilities of, you know, the imperial powers? What does this show us about the timelines necessary? What does this show us about the people necessary to, to make the demands that, you know, whether you're a communist or anarchist or a far right person, clearly we all feel the need to make massive demands on the current system. And it's, it's important to know that those demands are not being made without any leverage. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm glad that you actually brought up this topic because uh, there's a lot of juicy stuff in there that I kind of want to unpack. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think they're... It, and this you're right that the media is kind of being dubious about this because it's one way or another. They could be right that it's a primarily, you know, that the, the origins of this trucker uh protest movement it you know it could be seated in the alt-right you know for all we know mm -hmm. the, the the primary the leading people in this could be from the alt-right um but i think the important part or it's like the part that to highlight isn't necessarily like the the ideological um makeup you know like the you know if we're going to use a barometer here to like see what the like the ideological makeup of this group is I, I don't think that's as important i think that the media kind of is trying to to taint the image of it to kind of dissuade it because i think you're right a hundred percent the strongest thing that the working people and i, and I want to try to stay away from like saying with the working class because there's a lot of debate mm -hmm. between what that means like what the proletariat is um, but working people, the people that actually are the labor inputs, the labor units uh, in capitalism, I think that that shows or highlights that we still have what you like exactly what you were mentioning. We still have a lot of leverage on our side, um, and I think that's important primarily because one, I think there's this myth of like the myth of modernity that exists right now. That's like uh automation you know people like elon musk and the you know these hyper um what are they called like hyper billionaires like these hyper entrepreneurs uh like bill gates and all them they kind of make it seem like the current landscape is one which automation artificial intelligence things like that you know like the nick land narrative almost that mm -hmm. the human is unnecessary but and I'm gonna just like plug my own my own shit here. Uh, in terms of like, a, a, when I when I was writing about the transcendental deduction of oil, um, mm -hmm. there are two things that are still necessary to even make capital. The f first one is the, the energy substrate, which would just be oil, mm -hmm. and then the second one, which would be, you know, human infrastructure, like actual humans moving um, resources. Until you can automate, well, until you can move your energy substrate and until you can automate that late that labor um you don't have capitalism mm. and so i think you're absolutely right i think that right now the workers have the the card the cards are the chips are on our table so to say with mm -hmm. infrastructure showing how vulnerable it is with the rising amount of 
um, labor shortages, things like that across all different areas, not just, you know, like the blue collar, because trucking would be considered Mm -hmm. now a a blue collar or should have always been considered a blue collar job. But especially even more now with just across across multiple areas of industry, I think that you see that the workers have um, that leverage that they they didn't have. I think I think you're Mm -hmm. right. I think the moment is ripe to act and to kind of bargain and have the workers needs met and i've been reading a lot of tycoon and um the invisible committee and i think that a lot of that has to do with there's this concept that they have about resonance um and how we should kind of focus less on things like traditional unions or traditional groups or uh milieus and more about resonance and i think that's that's important because it, it resonance has less to do with um i guess like in a delusian like Hege- like anti-hegelian way identity and more with um uh like molecular like molecular revolution right like mm-hmm. finding uh finding similar lines of flight across different groups and then capitalizing on that to have revolution to have moments of um like genuine change and i think that especially with a trucker movement and especially with things like when we had the boat that got stuck in the what was it called in the uh, oh yeah the canal. yeah that's a great that's a great point uh, i think it was evergreen yeah was the it? evergreen boat I, evergreen boat i think you show how weak capitalism's um like infrastructure really is yeah, I think that's a great point. It points to the sort of paradoxical situation that we're left in with neoliberalism in that I completely agree with scholars who say that, you know, neoliberalism is basically a, a consolidation of an even more barbaric form of liberalism. That's true. And I do believe that neoliberalism marks sort of the victory of liberalism, capitalism and, you know, sort of democratic institutions over competing ideologies across the world. The irony is that as this ideology has consolidated and become stronger and taken over the whole world, because of the interconnectedness of the world economy under neoliberalism, it's actually extremely vulnerable to situations like this or to any sort of counterattack, because the entire economy is sort of this delicately laid out supply structure where everything is connected to everything else. So a boat gets trapped in the Suez Canal and we have you know, an energy crisis, so on and so forth. So I think it's important to sort of see the dual nature of neoliberalism, that yes, it's an extremely strong, it's an extremely violent in many ways and repressive ideology and economic system, but on its material or molecular level, it is increasingly entering crisis. It, inc- it increasingly in sort of the Deleuzian sense needs to break down in order to keep functioning better. Yeah, um, just to kind of push a, a little bit on that point, I think that the the biggest lie of neoliberalism, or just like capital capitalist democracies, if you want to generalize a bit more, mm-hmm. um, would be to kind of critique that this notion. I, I feel like Deleuze and a lot of the you know the the process theory theorists have been kind of 
uh, incorporated or subsumed by the the capitalist narrative. I think that they've already succumbed to being integrated, and then uh, you know it's like capitalism is a flux and and you know this like network structure. Uh, but I think I think what you've mentioned so far with the evergreen and you know like the the protests, I think it shows that it, it tries really hard to be that, but it it really isn't. Um, and the reason why is because um, it can't it can't restructure fast enough because it doesn't mm-hmm. have that that mass decentralization that it that it in a way keeps up the appearance that it does. Um, mm-hmm. But simultaneously, it shows that in order for something to have a network structure like this, you need world world-class uh hegemony and you do need a mayor narrative right. so the mayor narrative of um neoliberalism is you know uh and i think slavoj zizek kind of points this out i i think he i think i saw an interview where he talks about how um you know neoliberalism's lie is you know that hegemony of like oh we're all one culture we're all one person uh we can have mm-hmm. our differences and you know we can still work together and and, and i think that's the biggest flaw and it's you know it, it does work on this meta uh, meta structure of um you know it's like you know it, it did beat out the attempt at communism from um you know from the ideological wars and neoliberalism won but i think in that in that stride it also showed like you mentioned its vulnerability because it's so easy to create a counter oppositional move and it has to create ins- movements of insurrection of suppression to combat that you know you've seen it with all the united states intervention uh you know like in chile guatemala you know all this you know basically the cia is the world police Mm -hmm. um and you see that you you show that you need you know it's almost funny because the in a way the trotskyists were right you know trotskyism actually was the thing that um won the ideological war You you, you do need mass revolution and and then that, and then in a weird cynical way, neoliberalism uh, appropriated that, and, and it's like, yeah, mass revolution yeah. towards uh, <laughs> you know hegemony, like liberal, like mass liberalism right. across the uh, across the world. Right, exactly, and it sort of goes hand in hand that then neoliberalism is sold or marketed as an extremely bottom up ideology that sort of tries to put power into the hands of individuals and individual property owners and consumers. And, you know, it tries to say, look, we're not the communists, we're not the fascists, we're not sort of putting a top-down ideology onto the people. This is simply the best bottom-up. But that's that's incredibly false in, in the respect that neoliberalism is an extremely top-down planned uh, system of, of economics and ideology. And, you know, it, it depends on your propensity to sort of believe in conspiracy, but there's certainly a top-down approach, whether it's sort of the planning at the Bilderberg meetings or these international meetings or the UN to sort of have a unified approach, um, or it's just sort of a tacit understanding amongst them that, you know, you're you're instilling these top-down regimes. Now, what we're seeing now, or at least what I'm seeing now, is that the sort of fake bottom-up ideology is being shown to not exist in that liberalism is increasingly relying on top top down uh penalty penalties for for people who do not 
you know, sort of agree with the neoliberal regime, any side of the political spectrum. And so we see sort of the, uh, you could call it the working class, like we're saying, but I think it's more just those who are oppressed under liberalism are increasingly uh, broken apart into little groups against each other. So what, what you notice now is during like the BLM protests, the media will say, you know, oh, it's very violent. These are violent people. They're anarchists. And then when a right, you know, when another protest happens that has, you know, white, white people or white people who don't have like leftist ideology, they call it sort of a Nazi protest. And so you get both sides thinking that the other one is their true enemy, that there's these these two sides to the coin, when in reality, sort of the the leverage that you have, the people, the amount of workers and the force that you have is just increasingly being stimmied by sort of top-down methods of counteraction, mainly through the media. And it's just like with the CIA that you brought up is you see the continuation of an Operation Mockingbird. Operation Mockingbird was the, the CIA's uh, program in the 60s to basically make sure that their ideas, their ideology would be what's on the news. So basically they had a bunch of people on their payroll who were writing for the CIA, you know, and you see it now. I read the other day that, you know, with this war in Ukraine, I watched the New York Times publish an article saying that Russia had invaded Ukraine and they had to actually rescind that and say, oh, you know, this was not supposed to go out. But what that shows you is that it's it's planned, right? There's there's a planned media strategy to achieve whatever top-down sort of action the you know the big players want. And so there is a sort of a conspiracy, a top-down conspiracy here. And I I absolutely agree with Bifo Berardi when he talks about our need to conspire. And what he kind of points out, and I think many people point out, is that the word conspire means to breathe together. It just means to breathe together. And so he believes that people getting together, reading poetry, breathing together is a way of sort of building that leverage that we need, of building that force that would be necessary to counteract liberalism. And so in my in my mind, you know, seeing the conspiracy, quote unquote, conspiracy of liberalism, it shows that we we as a working class, as an oppressed class, need to conspire better with each other. Yeah, um, just a couple of things there. I think you're you're absolutely right. Uh, I think that the the accumulation of capitalism, um, and I think this is where thinkers like Nick Land and Mencius Moldbug, aka <laughs> Curtis Jarvin. Uh, are kind of interesting, uh, regardless of the, you know their their current um, inclinations. Primarily because uh, the, you know it's Kurt, uh, Moldbug's you know whole idea of formalism. I think that's that's it, it shows a mechanism which is there, but it's not you know formalized. So for example, we know or we have the intuition that you know there are. There are people, there are centralized forces acting, coordinating, um, you know, controlling uh, essentially the world or a large portion of the, the institutions that, you know, op- help operate the world. And, and the fact that they're not formalized is, you know, that's the, that's, that's in a way, that's how they retain their power, right? Because mm-hmm. 
if they were formalized and people could, you know, uh, you know, he has that whole patchwork system where you could, you know, opt out or opt in. It's better to know what the ruler is doing so that they can be held accountable. But it's like that that's the point. They don't get held accountable because of this anonymity. Um, And they breed conspiracy because that's how they that's how they create the facade that they're you know that almost kind of saying like there are these geniuses you know it's like the whole thing that came out with you know that conspiracy that bill gates knew about corona and it's like yeah he might as he could have there's a high probability Mm -hmm. that he was in on the pie um but to whose benefit is that that's not to to our benefit that's to you know this whole facade that they're these untouchable geniuses or untouchable mm-hmm. godlike figures um and that's how they that's how they accumulate and and keep their their power um and then just moving from that point to um what you mentioned about the needing to conspire better um i th- i think that's true i think that there is a lot of ins- insurrectionary potential and I th- we talked about this in i think our second podcast that we did together about um mm-hmm you know, in, insurrectionary, uh, like poetry, for example, and, and th- like insurrectionary art, things of that nature. Um, I think that that's where you, I think that fundamentally there is a need for uh, narratives, whether or not that's for everyone in a particular milieu or group or whatever, there is a need for narrative, micro-narratives, meta-narratives, things of that nature. I, I think that those are fundamental. And I think when you create the proper narrative, you create the proper affect by which people can act. Um, mm. And that's the part that I I really I really like about thinkers like Spinoza or, uh, or Deleuze, that the the affect is in a way, you know, it's it's like that that whole line, I think I think Leotard wrote it, which is that the the revolution happens on the on the fold, you know, the fold of a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's 100% true. I think that a particular affect that's produced is the the contingency that is needed for for overturning, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the current institutions. Yeah, I can. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, myth seems to be the catalyst or sort of the the place of power for these types of movements, just like you're saying with this narrative. And I think sort of. Uh, what myth represents then, like you're saying, is is the potential of any revolutionary movement. It sort of charges the potential of what could be with this movement. And so myth is in- increasingly important if we're going to sort of take control of our world, to sort of create our world with it instead of simply accepting the myths that we're given, um, which, which I think is extremely important, like you're saying. And it also shows the importance of controlling narrative and myth and how controlling narrative and myth is a, is a sort of titration of the potential of any people that if you don't have a narrative that's clear in what is happening and what must be done, then it becomes hopeless. You feel like there is nothing to be done and, you know, nothing can exist there. So creating myths together is probably the most sort of revolutionary thing that we can do right now, coming up with mythologies of who we are, what we could be, what the world is and what the world could be, I think is sort of at the forefront of revolutionary practice. Um, yeah, I, there's this point by um, Marquise de Sade um, about 
you know, the, like the natural order of the world, you know, he, you know, the, the, the whole, you know, to become like a beast or to become, you know, to, to be sadistic to, to put it that way, mm-hmm. um, you know, is to become like a beast, to be, uh, completely grotesque, to follow the natural order, um, you know, to, it, and there's this point, um, I forget where he writes it or, or if I'm remembering it correctly, but uh, there's almost like this dialectic, you know, this this horseshoe theory um, by Saad that that he puts up, which is the the most transgressive thing isn't to to go in the natural path, you know, to like, you know, to to be brute like nature. It's actually quite the opposite. It's it's in, in a weird way because you know if if you know someone like. Marquis Assad, that's where the term sadist comes or sadism comes from, you know, just mm-hmm. to be like completely grotesque. Yeah. Um, he actually writes about how it's actually the opposite. Like, humans are the only creature in a way that, unlike animals, where they can just, you know, um, you know, kill each other, rape each other without disdain or anything like that humans are the only ones that can actually go against nature they can actually rationalize and not do those things and in a way right. that's that's a transgression against nature itself which is the right. ultimate almost an ultimate form of um you know like uh like it's it's abhorrent in a in a, in a weird way um and the reason yeah. why i bring this point up is because i think and it bataille is you know known for for similar examples like this it's it's kind of like this this new way of not new way but maybe this alternative way of viewing revolution and and viewing um communistic or marxist potential uh, revolutionary potential i should say not as uh, not as you know i I think there's like that libertarian notion of like how the world is how it should function hierarchies things like that and i think that one thing that i i still hold on to that i still deeply am and pushed by in the in the the left leaning Marxist tradition or revolutionary tradition, whatever you want to call it, is that it's not about how the world is. It's about it's about like destroying the world. It's about completely right. obliterating it and making it shaping it how you want it to be. I think that's the most, and it's not even a Promethean Prometheanism. Yeah. I think that that's kind of not really the 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 line that I'm going for. It's just a complete obliteration. That that's almost in a way the natural, not the natural order, but the the natural transgression, the the actual transgression that we should that we should go for to to destroy the current yeah. world and and how it functions. Why would we want that? Yeah, I think that's a really great point, and I completely agree with it. It reminds me of what Simone Weil sort of says about grace when she brings up the Melian dialogue and, you know, the Athenians say, well, we're the strongest and, you know, therefore we're going to just kill you. And that's the gods are on our side because that's the natural way of things. You know, the strong do what they can, the weak suffer what they must is the natural order of, of sort of beasts. And they says doing what's natural or doing what is left to material machinations of, you know, the machine or the beast is not doing something good or human it's simply giving yourself over to the world of the devil you know the devil is the one who controls material for bay and so like you're saying the rejection of what is natural to to go to somebody who you have every right to you know treat poorly or to treat in 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 a way that seems natural to reject that 
to not follow sort of like the natural or sort of the material uh, machinations of, of the world is grace itself, is becoming truly human. And I think that's really important in a world where increasingly everything is sort of purported to be, you know, just the natural way of things. Things should be natural, you know, oh, it just works like this, you know. Uh, that's, that's a very dangerous uh, rejection of what makes us truly human. And it's, it's, it's a miscognition and a misrecognition of what the human is in thinking that it's just a machine. It's just some sort of computer. It's just, you know, like anything else and not what it truly is, which is this sort of uh, in-between being between God and man. Yeah, it reminds me of well, we talked a little bit yesterday um, before the recording of this podcast about uh, Death spoke Zarathustra uh, about the ape. You know how the ape mimetically follows Zarathustra and you know does the same uh, kind of does the same spiel, uh, but isn't like Zarathustra. And, and it's and it's a way. There's this. Well, we talked about how this. There's this kind of like mimetic return to monkey, right? Return to animal. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, we both agreed that this is kind of like the wrong progression. It's not a return to tradition that we need. Um, you know, it's like that image. Um, I don't know if it's in Beyond Good and Evil, but it's the image of the tight, the, the, the rope of walking across from animal to man to Ubermensch. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it's not a return backwards. It's not going back to animal. Although there's there's some some potential there with, with how Deleuze interprets that, but um, mm-hmm. Because you know there is a way to be to be man. Man is a particular type of animal, um, right? But it's not the same as returning to this like pre. How would I say it? These these natural me- uh, mechanisms, for example. Right. It's, it's to not the essence of man, but what is man as a creature? What is in its what potentials can we affirm within man? Uh, and when I say man, I obviously mean like like the the french om it's kind of like neutral yeah um yeah um you know it's like where where is the where is the 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 potential to affirm ourselves in 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 thought in thinking and in revolution and i think the 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 importance i think i think it's amazing that you brought up ve um i think it's important because um, like Ve, uh, it's not about, you know, that's, there's this kind of like naughty word in a lot of contemporary philosophy, which is like the transcendent or the transcendental things like that. But I think it's important to kind of allude back to those things because that's the, that's the contemporary image of thought, if that makes sense. That's how most people think about it. And, you know, you can say you're a Deleuzian, you're a post- delusion you're an anti-hegelian blah 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 all these labels but at the end of the day most people have an image of thought and if you don't talk in a way that actually creates a certain set of affects like i was mentioning earlier then you're not going to get to their to to their essence or to their heart however you want to call that yeah yeah no i i completely agree with that and it i think it goes back to what you're talking about and what we were talking about with myth is there really needs to be an explanation of how we got here and where we're going, even though there's no sort of uh, teleological truth to a meta narrative that doesn't make myth any less important as a social technology. Language is the most important social technology by far. And, you know, I've always been 
particularly uh, have a particular affinity for Burroughs's idea of language when he says that language is a virus from outer space, that it's basically this technology that's not natural to sort of humans, but is natural to our communication with one another now. In other words, we inherited something that wasn't ours, but that doesn't mean it can't become ours and that we can't use it properly, which, you know, it just goes to goes to our points that language then must be freed from its control mechanisms, whether that's moral, ethical control mechanisms or, you know, the financial control of using words purely for efficiency to, deprived of meaning. If we let that happen and we become Zarathustra's ape, we become something that can that can mimic what we used to be, can mimic what we thought we meant, but does not really, you know, understand the words that we're saying. And I think we're quite close to that sort of bestial way of speaking to one another, which which adds that revolutionary, you know, that revolutionary need for poetry, need for new forms of communication that won't sort of, uh, you know, keep the path of becoming animal in a way that we don't want to become, becoming sort of the, uh, uh, cattle, you know, not not an animal of our own choosing, but something that gets sort of milked or used or eaten according to someone who has more power, has a higher will to power than us. Yeah, no, I um, want to bring up the, I think that I love that you brought up Burroughs. Um, that directly makes me think of, you know, hyperstition, um, which mm-hmm. is, in a, in a way, in a way, the whole, all of language is just a, a weird hyperstition kind of making right. itself real um and i and it and it connects to um michel serre's notion of parasite which is um you know language itself is kind of a parasite it's it latches onto us it latches onto our ways of interacting communicating well, communicating by and large but um if you think about language it's not something it's like you mentioned it's a tool it's a higher order um or at least human language is is, i wouldn't say it's a higher order but it is a sort of weird mechanism uh you know it's like other animals or other creatures do have language but there's something specific about the parasitism between language in a sense that we use complex semiotics um you know because of the way they signify because of the relation to affect emotion and abstraction um i think that it's really important to mythologize in a way that mythologize in a way that it it uncovers deep unconsciousness um mm-hmm. peeling back the layers of uh, modern thinking of yeah. Um, of just kind of like sedimentary layers of thought that we kind of take for granted and going back deeper to kind of pull out more uh, like I was mentioning earlier affirming a sense of man but not necessarily in a return to monkey or return to tradition more of like what can we do what is in a in the Spinozian sense what can the body do you know that whole affirmation of we still don't know what the body can do but uh, from Spinoza's um, ethics, what what can we do? What what are, what are the, what are how can we push our bodies? Or and when I say bodies, I don't just mean us. I mean bodies in terms of communes, um, mm-hmm. circles. Um, you know how, what what can we do? 
Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. And I think we need to sort of rack our sort of epigenetic, deep, collective unconscious pool of symbols and metaphors to sort of understand where we are. And I think, uh, you know, Chris, who does uh, Chris Gabriel, who does meme analysis, really great preach. If you guys want to check it out and he'll be coming on the pod this year to talk about some of this, too. But he has a really he sort of does these deep dive psychoanalytic and occult sort of. Uh, interpretations of memes of modern day memes but he sort of has this meta concept of what's going on now with the internet uh like when we think about what uh the internet is we think too that it's sort of a matrix right there's sort of this matrix element to it and we know that matrix the word and the meaning of matrix actually comes from the word mother in in many ways it's it's sort of this mother but there's also this idea of a web of a vast web of of things and so if we think about the web, it's, it's really sort of like this giant uh, spider mother, you know, that's sort of getting us deeper and deeper into her, into her claws, and she's going to eat you, you know? But if you don't understand metaphorically how that's, that's operating, you don't quite understand the danger that, that the web or, you know, that the matrix mother can have, that you know, if you can kind of slink deeper and deeper into a almost insectoid like level of existence, uh, if you don't have any understanding of what's going on there, then you're simply vulnerable to it. But if we can start to symbolize what's going on with, say, like the Internet or the Internet is some sort of being that's, that's new to us that needs to be dealt with in a way that's not compatible with our current forms of understanding, that's the only way to sort of seek these existential risks going forward for both ourselves and our civilization in the future so that we might avoid them. And not only that, but that we might create a world that is not simply based on, you know, the, uh, you know, avoidance of massive existential crises all the time. Yeah. I, I, I love that you brought up that whole notion about the matrix. I think that the, for example, I think that just uh, like semiotic compression, for example, into mm -hmm. these memes, uh, is a way to kind of guide people's intuitions. For example, if they don't understand what's going on, you know, it's much harder to kind of make someone read a 50 page book about, you know, all this theory and give them all this background knowledge, but it's significantly less hard to kind of compress that into, I think that's why it's important to follow meme culture, for example, and, see that yeah. people do have this natural intuitionism um that's why memes are so effective you know the whole gamestop um thing that happened hodl you can make people have or intuit or have behaviors that can completely change systems without having to give them you know that's why i hate kind of that preachy read theory um kind mm -hmm. of like yeah. uh, mentality it's it's just what leotard was mentioning in libidinal economy about the priestly class of marxism yeah um no you don't really need that what you need is affects and i think that mimetics and i the way that you described um uh the matrix you know the the spider the, the you know the, this motherly spider that's gonna eat you mm -hmm. um i think that's a, that's a very very um very good way to illustrate it and just the way that you know it's it's so it's so intuitive to the point where it's 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 mundane and if i'm mm. not trying to it's it's just that you could you could explain that you can give someone a clear understanding of so much with that image with that affect 
that you don't need them to to be an expert on you know occult symbolism on right. you know all of the you know this theoretical framework blah 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 you know i feel like that just in a way does the opposite it just kind of makes people think well it's a waste of time why should i why should i care about it right right yeah i think that's a really good point yeah it's it's important i think when we're thinking about memes and the sort of dumb symbolism of today and i think chris does a really good job of explaining this about why memes matter in his word um but it's important i think to understand that the collective unconscious is has nothing new in it it's generative it can produce new things with what it has but there's this collective memory of symbolism where you know everything sort of has a resonance to something else that we didn't exactly experience but that sort of like the you know psychic data collection of matter itself has continually inscribed into our being we have memories of each you know stage of our existence and probably you know, eternally recurring exists to a, to a large extent. And so if we understand that, that everything has some sort of resonance, then it gives us a reason to dig deeper and spend more time with the symbolism and say, what is this? What am I, what am I eating here? What am I, what is infecting me? What is this symbol? Why is it infecting me, you know, on an unconscious level? And, you know, why does this matter so much to me or to other people? Otherwise, you're sort of just accepting every virus that you come into contact with, and you will become sort of just like a mimetic mirror of, of a human being. If you don't connect it to the collective unconscious, you don't connect it to your own unconscious, then you're really not connecting to the object itself. You're, you're becoming sort of part and parcel with that unconscious object. Yeah, um, I think this is why like a thinker, for example, like, uh, like Deleuze, is so important to kind of like the... The podcast itself, for example, mm-hmm. and just kind of our backgrounds. Um, I think, for example, I forget where Deleuze writes this, but Deleuze, I think it's in, I think it's in the Nietzsche book that he has. Um, I, I read an excerpt, excerpt on it, and it's not that. You know, it's it's about. He talks about how all of humanity forms habits, right? And the habits themselves are contingent. They're kind of irrelevant. So the habits that we form, the traditions, you could say, uh, just to put it in a more um, intuitive language. But it's the actual formation of habits itself that is universal. And I I Mm -hmm. don't want to say universal because that has platonic implications. But it's universal in the sense that all humans form habits. You know, that's in a way that's the... I think that's a third synthesis in... um, in the whole time diagram that he has in difference and repetition. Um, mm-hmm. And so this habituation that we have, um, that is, that is part of the unconscious, uh, you know, the, 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 this, this diagram of time that he has in difference and repetition is likened to Freud's um, three parts of the unconscious, the id, the yeah. ego, and the, what's the other the one? Super ego. The super ego. Um, the habituation itself that is an underlying structure and i think that when you when you mentioned you know it's it's connected to this um to this this collective unconscious it's the collective unconscious is is collective precisely because it has fundamental or these basic axiomatic uh like functions you know the, the habit mm-hmm. for example the, the formation of habits that make meme contag- memes are contagious because of this that's what makes them uh, that's what makes them easy to disseminate. It, it, memes are, uh, I wrote about this, memes are the 
the the the the virus of thought, for example, um, exactly. in a Spinozian sense, because they use the same triggers. It's 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 taking our our abstract bodies, our our abstract uh, faculties, and hijacking those systems to proliferate mm -hmm. itself. Yeah, and you know this is everything you're explaining. This is sort of what well, it is what you know, magic is with a K, you know, it's, it's the social or psychological technology of sort of using those unconscious triggers to sort of bypass the consciousness of another person, right? It's, you know, that's sort of like what magic is. So in many ways, magic, you can think of as simply the technology of mimetics, you know, it's, it's not so, so, you know, crazy and spiritual as so much it is a social technology. And I think that's what and I think, you know, later in the year, we can kind of get into this connection. But, you know, the movement towards uh, chaos magic is very much in that vein, just sort of using these unconscious triggers uh, in whichever way possible to affect change in the world. Right. So in, in many ways, the mastery of memetics is probably the most deeply important uh, technology for creation, whether that's creation of the self or creation of change in the world. To understand these unconscious triggers is probably the most important task of any human being. Um, just to follow up on that, I think that's very, very well put. Um, I think we have, you know, it's a whole idea. And I think that the, that's the kind of line that I, I do appreciate from people like Bot or logo where they when they talk about conspiracy and things of that nature it's or psyops mm -hmm. uh, which is you know what is a psyop if not the use of magic by the the elite class for example um that's why they're right. able to you know <laughs> mk ultra and a lot of these cia operations you know they if you look at the what they what they researched yeah. you know they spent money it's in black magic it. it's all black magic operations it's just like you know, until you understand a scientific framework for it, you call it magic, you know, before we had the depth of understanding that we're just screwing with people's brains and that's what's happening. You know, it has a little bit more mystification to it. Right. Um, it's just that I, there's so many different strata that you can ride these things or understand them or comprehend them, conceptualize them. And I think mm -hmm. that, I think you're right. They just refer to the same thing. That they're co-constitutive. Co um, but yeah, I think, I think that that's, that's why we need to, you mentioned Bifo Berardi's notion of conspire. Um, mm -hmm. that's why we need to conspire better. That's why we need to make our own narratives, make our own, craft our own magic, so to say. Exactly. Craft our own memes, our own magic, our own language, you know, just like the ruling class or the intelligence community has done, you know, to conspire together. That just gives us the power that, that kind of separates the ruling class from us, I believe, the ability to conspire properly, to work together in a, in a way that's uh, efficient and leverage. Yeah, I definitely, definitely have the same sentiment. Yeah. For anyone listening, uh, thank you for your time. Um, do you have any anything that we should mention? I think we just have the difference in repetition kind of yeah. uh, has so been we... solidified. Yeah, that's the big next thing. So we'll we'll be doing the difference in repetition series. Really looking forward to that. A sort of deep dive lecture series on sort of Deleuze's uh, 
densest text. But uh, we also have a few really cool guests coming up. Um, you guys should be looking out for some really cool people coming on the pod uh, soon. So stay tuned. Uh, thanks for listening and look forward to a great couple months of Decode content. Thank you, everyone. Uh, hope you have a good one. <laughs>